Welcome to Vernacular for Both, special episode two. This is our second episode with a special guest, and we're very delighted to have Stuart Wood with us. Stuart Wood is the musician behind The Daily Sporin, a running YouTube series of acoustic covers of Tull songs. Stuart has covered over 100 Tull songs on his YouTube channel since 2020, often rearranging the songs to fit the entire song's arrangement on acoustic guitar. He's also a member of the UK House of Lords representing the Labour Party, a former special advisor to Prime Minister Gordon Brown and a professor at the University of Oxford. So, Stuart, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. We're happy to have you here. Oh, it's a real pleasure. And thanks so much for inviting me. Really, really happy to, to meet you guys. In, not quite in person, but almost in person. Sure, no problem. As in person well, as one we of can. The, exactly. Yeah. And especially, all, you know, all of us are, of course, in three different time zones, kind of at the, at the complete opposite ends of the world, all three of us. Not yet opposites. Right, one quite. of the things that we're excited to have you on about is, so we are musicians who love Tull. You, of course, are also a musician who loves Tull. And the way the cool thing to me about what you do with your youtube series is how it's not just that you're covering tall songs on guitar but you know the you actually work to rearrange each song so that the entire arrangement is on one instrument which i'm i'm sure that's not easy and that's really fascinating for me just kind of uh from your perspective how you're able to do that so could you tell us a little bit about kind of how you start ar- arranging one of your covers kind of what's the first thing you sit down to start doing yeah um i guess the I, I always think of Jethro Tull actually fu- fundamentally as an acoustic guitar band. And I know everyone thinks of them as the, the flute playing, uh, sometimes hard rock band. But for me, maybe it's because I'm a guitarist. But I think of the sort of foundation of the whole music of Jethro Tull as acoustic guitar. And that's partly because, as we know, Ian Anderson wrote most of his songs in hotel rooms on tours on his acoustic guitar for the bulk of Jethro Tull. Um, But I also think of Jethro Tull as, for me, the greatest arranged songs in rock music. I mean, there's so many different lines. There's so much counterpoint between tunes. There's so much intricacy. So for me, it was a challenge just to try and reflect that intricacy using what I think of as the sort of foundational instrument of Jethro Tull. And um, I guess these are songs I just know so well. You know, I've been a fan since I was 15 and I'm now in my early 50s. So I know Jethro Tull's songs back to front. And so when lockdown began, I just I just set myself this challenge, really, of starting to first play the acoustic songs. And then the first song I really tried to do what you what you said, Joey, of reflecting the range of instruments on one in one instrument was when I did the um, Flee the Icy Lucifer part of Passion Play, which is my favorite section of a Passion Play. And it just came quite easy to me because because even though Jethro told Ditch their bluesy identity early on, they they keep the kind of call and response between vocals and different instruments all the way through. And so there's often a a sequencing out of the vocal line and the other melodies and the other instruments. So actually reflecting it all on one instrument isn't as difficult as you might think because it's arranged in a way that bounces between melodies across the instrument. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's really, and then it was so much fun to do that. I thought, let's try and take some of the even harder ones and, and keep going. So, um, so yeah, that's that's really that's really the idea behind it, really, to, to to give a sense of the craft behind the whole song, not just the the, the vocal line or or the or the acoustic guitar on its own. That's really interesting. So it's kind of a point of view that Tull's music is not so much about complex polyphony and layered melodic lines, rather than call and response and distinct melodic ideas that that happen in sequence. Oh, I think I think it's about that too. And you know, and you, you talked to one of your podcasts about the collage effects on M- M- Aqualung, and 
Um, I mean, all those layers, obviously, I can't give a, a sense of the amazing sonic layers that are in so many of the songs. Um, sure. So, you know, I can give a sense of the atmosphere at times, but I can't really get those layers, as you say, are also one of the most distinctive things about it. Um, but I, 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 for me, I, I think what I'm trying to bring out is the songwriting craft, most of all, really. That, that, that and the sort of feel of the song. Um, and the songwriting craft is not just the instruments Ian Anderson plays, because more than almost any other band, I think, the lines of the other instruments are, are, are not, if not scripted, they're, they're at least deeply considered in the studio. Yeah, sure. And they interweave so intricately with each other. And I imagine Ian Anderson probably had very strong preferences about Martin Barr's guitar line or Barry Barlow's drum pattern or whatever. And you can tell we, you know, we have some evidence for this on some songs, you know, where we know earlier versions and how many times and how long it took for them to work out an arrangement of a song where the different threads, you know, interwove the Ian Anderson and the rest of the band's satisfaction. So I do think of them as, as sonic layers as well. But, but, I, but the call and response thing, I think, just enables you to... You know, take a song like North Sea Oil, the opening song Stormwatch, which for me is one of the great Jeffrey Toll songs. It is. Um, it's it, it's really a um, it's a lyric line bouncing off the other instruments um, in five four time. Uh, it's and and that bouncing is you can easily do on one instrument. If you know, it's, it's not easy, but you can reflect that bouncing mm -hmm. character in in one instrument. I think yeah, that's great. So uh, doing that on one instrument, it kind of enables you to. Uh, show what you consider the most important thing in the song for you personally. So you've got to choose, but what, what you choose is what matters the most to you. Is that right? Yeah, and it's also, I mean, sometimes it's impossible to do. Like, again, another one of my very favorite Jethro Tull, when I say I have a top 10 list of Jethro Tull songs, I, usually the list is about 60 songs, so you have to <laughs> disregard that. But, but The Clasp on Broadsword and the Beast is one of my very favorite Jethro Tull songs. That's, That's probably my nice. favorite tune of any Jethro Tull song. Mm -hmm. And the, the flute line in that, which is for many people one of the great bits about that song, I couldn't do that on the guitar because I couldn't, I couldn't do it at the same time as sustaining the, the chords of the song. So sometimes there's just technical limits really to what you can do, uh, which means I have to leave out part of the counterpoint melody that I really love. Mm -hmm. But on the whole, yeah, you're right, Eugene. I try, I try and reflect some of the, some of the things that really really matter i'm doing journeyman at the moment for example for heavy horses which is obviously one of john glasscock's greatest moments you know and a very funky bass line but trying to trying to play that bass line while keeping the song going on one instrument is a, is a challenge it's quite a fun challenge which i do at the end of the evening with a glass of gin and tonic trying to work it out yeah one of the things that's impressive to me and that also seems very challenging about the covers you do is because Toll is a band that has so many different eras, you know, a ridiculous different amount of styles, eras, that kind of thing. You know, you've covered songs from albums like Under Wraps and Broadsword and the Beast, which are not typically songs that you would really expect to hear on an acoustic guitar and that kind of thing. And so yeah. it's kind of exciting for me to be able to hear how you would interpret, you know, a, like an Under Wraps song with tons of drum machine and synths and that kind of thing. It's really fun to watch. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I guess Under Wraps was the first album that came out when I became a fan. And I... I know. I obviously it's an album that divides fans hugely, or it doesn't really divide them. And most most people don't like it. I think it's a masterpiece, and we could have an entire podcast of me defending why it's a masterpiece of an album. Um, probably with Ian Anderson in the room, he 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 wouldn't agree with me either. Um, but you know, those songs were also, I suspect, you can tell when you work out a song on acoustic guitar whether it's written on an acoustic guitar, and I can mm -hmm. tell exactly which songs that under wraps were written on an acoustic guitar, including the title track, by the way, as well as the under wraps too, obviously, which is on acoustic. 
Um, I've often wanted to do just a, a, a concert with doing the whole of Under Wraps acoustic. I think that, <laughs> I'd have about six people in the room, I'm sure, but it'll be really, it'll be really fun to do. That's very funny because, uh, so at the time that we're recording this, we, we've recorded our Under Wraps episode, our episode about Under Wraps, but it hasn't come out yet. But uh, I think some people in the Toll community probably know this about me, but I'm actually a huge fan of Under Wraps, so I, I'm oh, totally you? with you on that. And uh, it, it's funny to hear you talk about doing the entire album acoustic because a project which I just recently wrapped up is uh, I recorded the entire album from front to back with live drums. So um, I... Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, the goal was to faithfully recreate every drum machine part except played on real drums. That is including the double bass, including the double bass tripping on uh, Saboteur. Did you do that as well? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, so it's, we'll talk about that when we get to the underrated songs, but th that was kind of a funny moment for me because I've, I've listened to Under Wraps my whole life, and I, I was very familiar with the songs, but I wasn't that familiar with the drum parts. So yeah. when I was kind of doing that cover, I had to kind of sit down and really map them out for the first time. And when the double bass came on on Saboteur, I was just like, "Oh, you've got to be kidding me! I gotta, <laughs> I gotta get a double bass pedal and figure that out just for this song." So, but yeah, that was funny. We uh, at the moment we're still mixing that video, but that's I had the exact same idea that you know we should do an entire you know remix of this album. You know, if Stephen Wilson's not going to give it to us, maybe we'll do it ourselves. It's funny. You should, I guess I guess the. Uh... I mean, in a way, I would be terrible on your podcast as part of a regular contributor because I, I I genuinely think that from the minute New Day Yesterday begins on Stand Up to the minute that Raising Steam ends on Crest of a Nave, what, 18 years later, um, I don't think – I think Jethro Tull make four poor songs in that period. <laughs> and by poor, I mean just good rather than outstanding. So, you know, what, what's so good about your podcast is that you have different views, and sometimes you're quite critical. I would be it'd be very difficult for me to be critical of almost every song in that entire range. But I guess I, I've always thought of that as their as the bulk of their body of work, and because there's so much variety, you know, even between you know War Child and Minstrel in seventy four seventy five, let alone between Broadsword and Under Wraps or Stormwatch and A, you know, down the line, I've never thought of the eighties albums as as different and because i don't re i'm not really a fan of hard rock in general um and i'm not really a prog fan either i mean i like bits of prog i've never felt wedded to one particular era of jethro tull as the jethro tull and everything else is then a bolt on mm -hmm. uh, until you get to the 90s i think things change you know uh, uh, after that um so i don't really oh i see eugene shaking his head maybe he disagrees <laughs> but I, I don't i don't really um so I, I don't think the stylistic changes, even into the 80s, for me, preclude um, thinking of Jethro Tull in the same way, really, in terms of the songwriting, the craft, the layers, the sound changes, but not the not the art of building the song, in my view. We did have a moment, uh, we did have several moments, actually, on the podcast where we found it difficult to criticize anything like i did with stormwatch or the broadsword and the beast actually because i love that album to bits uh and i will have a moment like that when talking about roots to branches because that album matters a lot to me and i would dis disagree with anyone who said that it was anything less than excellent <laughs> <laughs> yeah i find i find that the albums that i def i have very few friends who even know jethro Tull, let alone listen to them but I guess the three albums that I defend to, to fans who otherwise love Jethro Tull um, are War Child, Stormwatch and Broadsword. I mean, they're for me are three total masterpieces. And for some reason, War Child 
Warchild, because it's, I think, considered a bit bitty uh, and still proggy, too proggy for a lot of people's tastes. Um, Stormwatch, because it's seen as the end of the era and it's quite a somber album, and Broadsword, because it's electronic. Those three albums get abuse that I think is totally undeserved. Um, so I find myself defending those albums more than almost any others, really. They need that. It's true. <laughs> So, Stuart, you mentioned that in that 18-year gap between Stand Up and uh, Crest of a Nave, there's only four songs that you would point out as being below standards. I'm curious which of those four. Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, this, is, this is where you're going to disagree with me. One would be Play in Time, which I find just, I know, I, know I heard Eugene talking about it the other day on, the, <laughs> on, the, uh, on your podcast. I, I, I find Play in Time just sort of a straight-up bluesy, you know, straightforward. I don't dislike it, and then I find the feedback guitar just a bit annoying. So uh-huh. I don't, I don't dislike it that much. I just find it a little bit kind of, you know, routine. I guess I'm not That's a big fan. Then you'd have to fast forward about seven years for the next bad song, or not the less, the next less than outstanding song. So for me, it would be Big Dipper on Too Old to Rock and Roll, mm-hmm. which I I've always found a little bit sort of throwaway. Although the theme of it's quite interesting. And then you have to go all the way to A, I think. Um, when I'm, I'm less of a fan of um, four-wheel drive on side two of A. <laughs> this, is where, this is where we need the feckless moms to come in because I had a feeling that they both <laughs> love four-wheel drive. I really... Um, and after that, I think, that's pro- I think it's probably three. I guess that's probably it. Um, I will make a case for every other song. Four-wheel drive, however, has a nice kind of... Um, melody going in there it's like a bluesy so bluesy scottish melody uh that that has a it has an interesting cadence because it kind of doesn't stop it goes on and on and on and that's one thing i like about it and the drum intro the folky instrumental bit in the middle is very good see, even in the bad songs or mm-hmm. the less great songs there's still lots of redeeming greatness in it i think it's true yeah we kind of so you mentioned Too Old to Rock and Roll, which that's a very interesting album to me because I've mentioned on our podcast that when I look at the 70s, which, you know, the golden age or however people want to describe it, there's two albums that stick out to me in that decade, which don't really cut it for me. They seem kind of noticeably below standard. And the first one is actually War Child, which I know that's kind of controversial for some, but that that's actually an album that I've grown to like more as we've done our podcast here, but um, it still doesn't quite hit the bar for me. And the yeah. second is Too Old to Rock and Roll, which is a very strange album that I feel. And we both said on our podcast episode about that album that we feel it's one of, it's probably the most under-discussed album of the 70s. And the issue it has, I mean, it kind of has the identity crisis thing, which Warchild kind of had because it started out as this, you know, stage play, which got aborted. And so the, the full concept was kind of half-baked. And that album, to me, it feels like there's a noticeable amount of throwaway songs on that one, uh, kind of much more so noticeable than other albums. But at the same time, I've also kind of, there's some really unique little gems on there, too that I yeah. can't really ignore, that I've kind of grown to like more and more over time. So it's a really strange album, kind of the strangest of the 70s, in my opinion. I always think that period is fascinating because a lot of the big prog bands of the early 70s are totally discombobulated by the arrival of punk in 76, 77. And they all like, you know, Genesis, yes, they go into their different directions in some more commercial direction. And if you'd have been a Tull fan in... 
75, you've got Minstrel in the gallery coming out, and then Too Old to Rock and Roll comes out, you probably think Jethro Tull are going to start making more commercial record or more trying to be more commercial and then they do the one of the most extraordinary creative decisions just when punk takes over the earth they decide to go into this folky trilogy albums with with some of the most complicated and least accessible sort of least commercial at least arrangements of songs and it's it's an incredibly bold decision and i think that's actually a theme of jethro toll throughout ian anderson is a very extraordinary example of someone who is a ruthless business person about the band but also creatively unbelievably bold uh, and and never almost never turns down taking a risk uh, creatively in order to go for the the vision of what he wants to do there's a wonderful interview on youtube in 1972 when he talks about as thick as the bricks just come out and he talks about the next three albums in his mind and he basically sets out passion play and war child not 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 everything about them but the kind of basic concepts of them and the theatricality of what he wants to do with war child and, and he's clearly sort of planning for himself a future creatively for the band but he's not doing it in order to sort of you know in order to sell singles or to or, or to appeal to a mass market he knows exactly what he wants to do musically and within that he then becomes incredibly efficient as a business person about how to prosecute it in a way that makes money and sells records yeah, I think the point of view of l- looking at the folk trilogy as a response to punk while doing basically the opposite thing, I think it's it looks like a decision like uh, they thought we're not going to outplay punk on their field. We're not going to compete there. We're going to do something completely different. Yeah. It looks looks like that. But yeah, with punk, uh, it's not just that in terms of sales and popularity punk overshadowed, there's, there was also a philosophy to it that basically said that progressive rock and doing complicated stuff wasn't, was, was not necessary. I remember Jacko Jackchick, uh, the guitarist in King Crimson these days, who yeah. mixed a few Tal albums and Ian Anderson albums. Uh, he told a story that he was... Um, during sound check or something, he was playing a show in the 70s and he was with his guitar on stage and there was a punk band who had to play the same stage on that day. And one of the, the musicians from that punk band walked up to him, looked at him and said something along the line, lines of, look at this guy, he can play guitar really well. What a wanker. <laughs> yeah, I get a lot of that response on Davies Foreign as well. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think it's what, what's interesting is that when it comes to the late 70s, after punk is sort of given way to new wave and electronic music, Ian Anderson is clearly, he does get enamored with the change of sound of, of mainstream music mm-hmm. towards electronic instruments and tries to get ahead of the game. You know, famously, he's, he, 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 tries to, he tries to work out programming and, um, and the new sort of the new sound of electronic music before other bands of, his, of, of Jethro Tull's sort of vintage uh, do. And there's this famous story of him standing in the wings in the Stormwatch tour watching um, Eddie Jobson playing with UK, the support mm-hmm. band for Jethro Tull. And um, I think it's Dee Palmer. One of, the, one of the existing Tull band members says you could tell that he was enamoured with this very different way of playing keyboards, I mean, much mm-hmm. more electronic, synthy centred songs. And clearly in the early 80s, he tries to bring that sound in. It's a, it's a complete sonic shift, really, isn't it, from, from A onward. So he does respond to... 
you know, he famously says, I don't listen to other, other music because I want to preserve my originality. But he clearly does respond to some things yeah. at times. But sometimes, as you say, he responds by sticking a finger up and going in a different direction, um, being sort of countercultural. He's always his own man, I think, in terms of the direction that they take. Yeah, but sometimes not. Like, I, when we were doing Under Wraps, um, I read some of the liner notes on an early 2003 issue of Under Wraps. And what he said there, that this album sounded like a cross between The Police and Thomas Dolby. And I listened <laughs> a little bit. I was completely unfamiliar with Thomas Dolby. And I listened to both, kind of brushed up on The Police. And yeah, it does sound like that. So it it was that one was clearly a response to the times, but also a development of walking to light. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that that's right. I don't want to spoil your under wraps. I think under wraps for me is uh, the, the weakness of under wraps is the first song and the last song. It does it doesn't begin and end with strong <laughs> songs. But yeah, we totally agree. We said the same thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I haven't given too much away that I had a different view. But <laughs> but one of the fascinating things to me about the 80s, Tull, is the way that Ian Anderson essentially, he rotates through a, a, a long cast of drummers and keyboard players, mm -hmm. right, throughout the 80s and early 90s. And it's not that those those instruments are not important to the songs. I mean, the keyboards dominate the songs in, in, in some of those albums, Peter Vitesse. But it's almost like he's he's contracting out those, he has a session musician view of those instruments throughout the 80s. Mm -hmm. Um, the core members are the two guitarists and him, three guitarists, you could say. And I, that, that I think, and I think that that decision has its costs, right? And 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 the biggest cost is under wraps, where the famously the drum track becomes the actual track. I think the band members thought it was just going to be the the track until you got a drummer in, right? And then it turned out that he, he kept the drum track on the final version of the album. So yeah, I think I think the set the sound of under wraps has its problems, but the songs, in my view, apart from the first and last one, don't. Yeah. So. Stuart, if I remember right, you started the Daily Sporum as uh, at the beginning of lockdown in, with coronavirus. Yeah. And, you know, the, the lockdown situation, I think, has been very different in the UK as it has in other places. Um, you know, Japan, where I live, basically never had a lockdown. It was just kind of uh, small regulations on uh, bars and restaurants and that kind of thing. So is it safe to say that the Daily Sporin, you learning tall songs and guitar, that was kind of your hobby that you developed as a result of lockdown. Yeah, I, I, it was really, um, our lockdown in March 2020 began as a full lockdown. It was almost almost overnight from nothing, really. And I just, I thought I have to give myself a daily task to kind of get myself through it. And, you know, also in lockdown, we were all scared in different ways, right, when, when lockdown began. And I, I took refuge in something that I loved. And I'd always, I'd always loved Jethro Tull. I'd always bored. All my friends always teased me about being a Jethro Tull bore. And I played guitar, but I never really put the two things together. You know, I never really played any of the songs. So for me, it was just a, a morning routine. I'd get up, make myself some breakfast, and then pick a song and teach myself how to play it. And because it's in my head, you know, it wasn't, it, it didn't, I didn't find it that difficult to, to, in fact, it was enormous fun to do it. Um, and then the second thing became, I, I, it was a way to connect with Jethro Tull fans because, you know, I r really didn't know any Jethro Tull fans. And the, the most wonderful thing has been the people who've got in touch and from all over the world who've, you know, connected. And um, I have one, one woman who said that um, when I played Flying Dutchman, which is another one of my top 10 songs, uh, that her father had passed away and it was always a song that he loved. And they, her mother and her listened to me playing it and shed a tear for that, for her father. And it brought me to tears. It's, It's a lovely way of connecting with, uh, you know, a, a, dis a disparate community of uh, 
people who love Jethro Tull for all sorts of, of different reasons. So really, that was that was the that was the motivation, and, and that was the consequence. And every now and then, you get a convert, someone who says, oh, "I never thought I'd like that crazy man with a flute who walks around with a sporran and all." And every now and then, they find that they like a song, and I think that's that's the loveliest thing for me, is when someone who's set their mind against ever liking Jethro Tull finds that what they hear from me is a way into the real the real McCoy, you know. That's wonderful that you can, you achieve that kind of result. It's fantastic. It's always a way of pointing people back to the original, right? It's always a way of, you know, mm -hmm. if you like the if you like the the basic shape of what you hear here, go back to listen to the original and you know open the world of that. So you've said as well uh, that you've learned all the songs by ear, which is quite interesting. Um, I, you know, in all the work that I've done covering Tull, I've also learned everything by ear, and I imagine Eugene has as well. So I know what the process looks like for me to learn a tall song by ear. I'm kind of curious what it looks like for you. You know, of course, we play different instruments, but for me, it's, I mean, it's really nothing more than just listening a lot and practicing a lot, uh, you know, breaking it down into little chunks, you know, taking it maybe 30 seconds at a time or section by section. That's usually what it's like for me. So how does it work for you? Do you write tabs down? Do you notate it all or do you just do it all by ear? No, I don't. I don't write anything down. I mean, Ian Anderson. There's, there's complexity galore in Jethro Tull, right? Arrangements, time signatures, progression. But the chords that he uses, on the whole, are not elaborate jazzy chords. Every now and then, you get songs that do have that. Particularly, weirdly, earlier on, you get more jazzy chords. A song like True. "Alive and Well and Living In" mm -hmm. has quite complex jazz chords, and in fact, two different chords, left and right hand, on the piano. But but you but on the whole, Ian Anderson writes in chords and sequences of chords that are quite easy to access. One of the, it's one of the easier things to get to grips with in Jethro Tull. So the basic shape, the melodic and chord shape of songs is the thing I start with. And if you, I mean, with Ian Anderson, you just have to, the first thing you have to work out is where the capo was on the guitar when he, when he, when he composed it. And once you get that, and you guitarist can, you can hear the shape of a song, right? You can hear the famous Ian Anderson D chord on the third fret. You can hear these chords uh, when you listen to the songs. But when you, a song without an acoustic guitar, you can also work out, once you work out where the capo is, you can work out the, the progression and the sequence. So for me, it starts with the melody and the chords. And then, and then as Eugene said, you, you listen to the other instruments and the way that they feed in, and you try and reflect what are the, how the shape of the song is sustained by the other instruments. I, I try and even do it with the drums sometimes, but it's obviously much more difficult. Although Barry Barlow is the most musical drummer, I think, of any drummer. Totally. Uh, Martin Barr's eulogy to him when when he enters a band and thick as a brick is amazing. I think about the musical dimensions he brings to the band, and so even the some songs you you can you can start to bring in some of Barry's uh, musicality on acoustic guitar, weird as that may sound. So that's really the process. The layering begins with the chords and the and the melody, and then I branch out from there. That's great. I think with the capo position, uh, I find that it's very often quite consistent throughout an album. You can see how Ian wrote the songs on an album with, with the capo most, most of the time in the same place. Like the, there are like capo three albums and capo four albums, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's right. And there's also Dadgad interludes as well, when he yeah, changes sure. the tuning on his guitar, mm -hmm. particularly like in the mid-70s. He does it, One Brown Mouse and... Um, uh, bad eyed and loveless, but but also, I, I've I've been trying to do this sort of uh, archaeological dig into when the first song he wrote when he put Capo on the third on the third fret, uh -huh. um, and actually a time for everything on benefit, uh -huh. which I know you you're not a fan of Joey as much. So that was that was one of the episodes of your podcast when I was raging at the uh, 
at the podcast. <laughs> uh, just joking, but I, I think it's I think it's an astonishing song. But that that makes sense when you put the capo on third fret. So I think he wrote that on with capo on third fret. But the door the doors open to a different way of him playing guitar the minute he starts doing that. Interestingly, it changes his own songwriting. I think as well the way. And when he starts writing the sort of more Roy Harper folky stuff from 1970 onwards, mm-hmm. it's almost all on Capo 3 for about two or three years. And Passion Play is almost exclusively on Capo. If you did an acoustic version of Passion Play, you'd have the Capo on 3 for basically 90% of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I imagine that Benefit would have given given you moments of rage because even though I love this album a lot, I remember criticizing Inside, which you lo- which I know that you love very much. So yeah, I apologize for that. Yeah, I love Inside too. Yeah. yeah, that was a mistake on your part, Eugene. We'll forgive you that one. Okay. <laughs> uh, did you ever reference when doing this? Did you ever reference the website, the Jethro Tull guitar page? Because I remember when I was kind of learning guitar at the same time as I got my kind of first internet access. I discovered this very old, well, not so old then, uh, website uh, called the Jethro Tull Guitar Page, maintained by Paco Jimenez and Hokan Matson, to whom I am eternally grateful. Because I learned a lot I have, of things I didn't know that from reading. That that's fascinating. Because I sometimes browse it these days as well. When we are preparing uh, for an episode, because I don't really have the time to transcribe everything, I look at the transcriptions, uh, guitar transcriptions on that side to get a reference for what's going on harmonically in the songs. And if I see something interesting, I research that more in depth. Well, no, I, I never, I, I've never, even, I haven't heard of the page. I'll look it up now. Um, but no, I don't use, I, I've never used tabs for anything. I don't, I don't really know how to read. Well, I can read tabs, but I don't find them that helpful. And with mm-hmm. with, with Jethro Tull, it, it makes almost no sense to use tabs because everything is in between the chords, right? There's, yeah, there's always, right. there's always, there's always melody running between the chords, uh, and you can't really, you, you get to first base if you're lucky with tabs, but you can't, you can't unpick the progression of the song and. Often the chord is then left within the first beat by the melody moving on. So mm-hmm. tabs and transcriptions for me don't really capture it. So I've never really, I've never really done. There's, there's, there's a couple of there's one song that, for example, I'd love to do, but there's one chord I just cannot work out, and I've tried now for six months to work it out. It's Flying Colors from Broadsword and the Beast. Uh-huh. It's an incidental chord. If, if you want, it's, 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 the, it's the chord when, when he says, we'll settle old scores now and we'll settle the hard way. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that chord that I just, I'm not happy with the way that I'm playing it. And it could be that it's just the way that the chord is inverted and I'm not getting it right. But it's, it's so a I do, wrestle, I do wrestle with it, but I never wrestle with it. I never wrestle with it with um, websites or with, not, not out of principle. I just, I just find it easier and uh, I find it's more, more faithful to the actual song if I can work it out myself in some way. Mm-hmm. There is, by the way, a guy called Snooze Doctor on YouTube. I've seen a couple of his videos when he he gives uh, lessons in some of the classic Jethro Tull acoustic guitar moments. And I've seen yeah. his Velvet Green one, which someone pointed. He's very good. He's really worth worth looking at. And every now and then, by the way, someone responds to one of my videos and says, I think you got that chord slightly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so someone did it on Don Ringle, for example, and, and was completely right that I just missed a, I'd missed a sixth in the chord. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know... Isn't the internet wonderful for spotting fellow nerds about obscure songs? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, something that we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but just for the benefit of our listeners, I'll repeat it here. One of the things that I was really surprised to learn about you is that you're a member of parliament. That was something that I had no idea about, about you. 
Um, I, I really thought you were just kind of, you know, just an online Jethro Tull fan. And then it turns out that, you know, you have this very illustrious career in government and politics in the UK, which was very surprising. So I'm sure as a member of parliament, something that you're, you know, you're often asked to give various kinds of palace intrigue to a lot of different kinds of people, whether it's reporters or even if it's just, you know, constituents or whatever it may be. So I'm going to ask you a very unique about for a very unique kind of palace intrigue, which I imagine you've probably never been asked for before. And that is, are there any other members of parliament who are Jethro Tull fans, either closeted <laughs> or otherwise? It's funny that, that there are people, I mean, I, I, so I used to work for Gordon Brown, who was the British prime minister between 2007, 2010. And one of my jobs was to be the link between him and the, the White House in the United States. And that period was the last year of George Bush, George Bush's presidency, and then the first two years of the Obama presidency. So my job was to be the kind of connecting person to both of those teams, which was an amazing privilege, right? In incredible privilege. Uh, but there was a guy who was George Bush's press spokesperson. Yeah, Tony Snow, right? Tony Snow, yeah. And Tony Snow, yeah. he, died, he died of cancer, sadly, a few years ago. But he was an absolutely huge Jethro Tull fan. And I think Ian actually played with him a couple of times or did something with him on, his, on a show or something in the US. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. So, but in the UK, the, I guess the answer is not really. There are a couple of people I know who like individual songs. Our, our defense minister, when we were in government, called Jeff Hoon, he was a big fan of Aqualung. But it's it's really, I, I don't know what you find. I find. It's very interesting being in Britain, you know, Jethro Tull's home, and they are, you know, not really that appreciated in here compared to the US. You know, when I lived in the United States for five years and I would see Tull, this was in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I remember going to see them in Worcester, Massachusetts for the uh, Rock Island tour. And I couldn't believe how many people were there because in the UK, it's just a, it felt like a smaller group of people loved them. And the dynamic of the audience was so different. But here in the UK, they're, they're, it, people are kind of scratch their head when you say, you know, who are they? And some people might say, oh, yeah, that guy with the flute. And But but there's really very little kind of knowledge of them. And I've, in Parliament, that's that's true as well. They're either kind of ridiculed as everyone's favorite band to tease about the early 70s period of excess, or they're just someone that no one's heard of. So I've never really had, I'm afraid to say, I've never really had much uh, contact with people here in Parliament or elsewhere that, that know much about them. Yeah, I think it's the case with uh, a lot of progressive bands, old progressive rock bands these days, because uh, like King Crimson recently played a tour of the US and didn't play a single show in the UK and then moved on to Japan and Yes is famously based in the US these days and I think I even remember kind of watching on YouTube uh, a, a British t TV show says something like Richard Osman's House of Games or something like that where either Jethro Tull or Living in the Past was one of the answers and no, no one got it. <laughs> a pointless answer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. It was kind of funny to hear your story about being teased in Parliament for liking Jethro Tull. It made me think uh, when I was in middle school, which is absolutely not comparable to Parliament. But when, when I was in middle school, uh, my nickname among my gym teachers was Jethro because I was a Jethro Tull teacher. So I was always relentlessly teased for that uh, by my PE teachers. And, you know, the, the story about Tull being bigger in the U.S. is interesting, and it actually makes me think of uh, another U.K. band that I'm a big fan of, which this has nothing to do with Tull. But I'm a very big fan of Blur, the alternative rock mm -hmm. band. And it's always been very interesting to me how the way that their popularity works in reverse around the world, 
where, yeah. you know, Blur were a massive band in the UK and in a lot of other countries, you know, in Europe and the Commonwealth, but they never made it in the US kind of in reverse. And that was always yeah. very interesting to me. It's, it's really uh, strange how popularity can work that way with uh, UK bands around the world. It was a really interesting experience moving to the US because, you know, I, I, I remember hearing that day four living in Boston, I suddenly put the radio on, I heard Bungle in the Jungle, and I thought, is this some kind of practical joke? Like, no one, no one knows this song apart from me and my brother. And, you know, as you know, it's a classic rock kind of staple, not staple, but you, you hear it on classic rock quite a lot. And, yeah, I guess the, the, the hard rock side of, of Tull is much more mainstream in the US, right? That's, that's, that's the thing that is very different. In the UK, interesting, the songs you would ever hear on the radio in the UK would be Living in the Past, and the other one would be Ring Out Solstice Bells, which is a which was a Christmas, a very minor Christmas hit here. Right. And every now and then when they play all the Christmas songs on the radio, it'll be tagged on at, at the end of some compilation. And that's you still hear it once in a while, interestingly here. Yeah, that's very it's very funny because we uh some of the things that we've talked about is, you know, the total radio play in the US. Because to me, it's, you know, when you listen to classic rock radio in the U.S., you know, the, the standards, quote unquote, Tull standards that come on, they're very unrepresentative of Tull as a band. Yeah. Because it's usually things like, you know, Aqualung, Locomotive Breath, Teacher, Living in the Past, Bungle in the Jungle. You know, all of those songs are fine, but still, you know, they, they don't represent what Tull is as a band. Yeah. If you listen to just those songs, you may get the impression that they were just kind of another sort of somewhat prog influenced classic rock band. And it was interesting to hear about Ring Out Solstice Bells. We talked about that on our Songs from the Wood episode. And I had to check with Eugene uh, to confirm that that was actually a big Christmas song in the UK because I had no idea. Because it's definitely not a Christmas song in the US. So that was very funny for me to learn about. I mean, I wouldn't say it was big. It was it, it was it was number thirty nine in, in the in the charts. But they played on our, on the on the week on the weekly show that everyone watched called Top of the Pops, which you mm-hmm. could you can see their performance on on YouTube. Yeah. I think this brings up a really interesting theme for me, which is the Englishness and Britishness of Jethro Tull. In the same way that Monty Python are almost incredibly English in their humor, but still massive in the United States, I find it really interesting that Jethro Tull, who have such a lot of English folk knowledge and Scottishness in their music, but particularly in their lyrics, can transmit to the United States. I mean, they're in a way, they're the most parochial of all the big bands of that period. I mean, you, I, I heard your exchange on your podcast about cheap day return. You know, that's, that's a very English phrase. A cheap, are you going to get a cheap day return, a return, <laughs> return ticket? And there's no reason why you would know that, right? There's no reason why that would, that would transmit. But Jeff Rattel is full of that, right? I mean, Too Old to Rock and Roll is about a particular period of, of uh, you know, Ian Anderson growing up in Blackpool in the late 50s, early 60s, when people would come into this very dingy seaside resort in order to you know, have, have a lot of drinks and have fun on the beach and then go home again. And it, it has a period associated with it. A lot of, you know, Aqualung is set basically where I live in North London. I live in Highgate, which is referenced in the songs and Hampstead, Hampstead Heath. So all the, all the iconography of Aqualung is... It's a particular part of North London. Ian Anderson lived down the road in Kentish Town at the time. And again, the, the folkiness of the late 70s, that's very Scottish, very uh, very British in its sensibility. It's place references, Dunring Girl, places in the Isle of Skye. It's got so much which is about being British and English in it. The politics of the period as well, right? And yet it seems to transmit so easily to places, to countries that have no sense of, you know, where Piccadilly Circus is or, you know, where Highgate is or where Dunringle is. I think that's a fascinating thing about it, really. I wonder whether it's exotic, whether it's mystical in some way. 
I, I believe you, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. Well, a hypothesis, because I'm not American, but I think what you've said about being exotic was actually something I, I wanted to express. It's probably something the British people will not appreciate as much these days, because they would maybe look at Jethro Tull, all that folkishness uh, and Britishness of Jethro Tull as quaint, while to an American, it is just something from another another time and place. Would that be true? Yeah, I, I guess I, I guess that could be right. Um, it, it's a strange mixture of the universal, you know, the, the, all the great themes of Ian Anderson's lyrics, right, which are about tackling authority that you that you think is bogus, the inadequacy of organized religion, social issues, communing with nature. These are all extraordinarily universal themes, but they're all interlaced with with a kind of English silliness and English mm-hmm. cultural references. You know, he's 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 got a quite slapsticky sense of humor, Ian Anderson, right? There's lots he of does. There's lots of references to sort of sexual innuendo and there's lots of uh, joke, like kind of teenage laddish jokiness knocking around in there as well, as well as the more profound things. And yeah, so I, so I, th- I think you're right, Eugene. I think it, there is some sort of timeless exoticness about, about the references in his lyrics, as well as these great universal things. But the Britishness is, is quaint and interesting, I suppose, in a lot of yeah. what he writes. Yeah, there's kind of a famous saying that Americans don't understand British humor. Which maybe that's true. I don't know. But, you know, particularly on things like Thick as a Brick, that was often a thing that was often said, I think, about how even though Thick as a Brick was a huge commercial success in America, right? Uh, I think there, there was a lot said about how in America and even in Japan, especially that a lot of the, the specific kind of Python-esque absurdity of Thick as a Brick and things like that were kind of lost on the audience. Um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, at the same time, you, Joey, as an American, you enjoy the hair who lost his spectacles. So not all Americans <laughs> right, yeah. don't. Yeah, well, that's a kind of that's a sort of a theater of the absurd part of Jeffrey Tull in that period, isn't it? Which is there's a sort of surreal absurdist side to them, which is I actually think, by the way, Ian Anderson gets that period of his own career wrong. But that's that's for another. <laughs> I, I was thinking this when I listened to Thick as a Brick. Uh, see, Thick as a Brick for me is not a satire at all. It's actually the the lyrics of Thick as a Brick are way more earnest than Passion Play. Way more earnest. It's it's the it's the rapping that is the satire and progressive rock. Literally, the rapping of the album, the, the newspaper, is is full of you know Nicky taking fun poking kind of sides of it. The the music and the lyrics of Thick as a Brick, I think, are incredibly earnest. I think they're ingenuous. Passion Play is much more detached and satirical and acerbic. Uh, it's just that the music is much more earnest and complex. I mean, Thick as a Brick is relatively accessible, in my view, compared to Passion Play. So for, for me, the idea that Thick as a Brick is somehow, uh, you know, they thought we did a concept album with Aqualung. I'll show them, what a, you know, with a wink in my eye, what a real concept album is. I think that's a little bit of revisionism, but I, I also think it's, it's specifically about the, the, the presentation of Thick as a Brick rather than the music itself, you know, which is, he took that incredibly seriously, expressed a lot of themes in that, right? And, you know, famously, he rewrote Side 2 in the studio because he wasn't happy with it. And I, I, I don't think there is, I don't think there's much humor in Thick as a Brick, actually. I think it's an incredibly uh, serious album, uh, lyrically and musically. Yeah, we kind of had the same conclusion, I think, when we talked about Thick as a Brick. Uh, I, I have never seen it as a parody. You know, it's often described as a parody in when critics talk about it or when Ian talks about it or whatever. And for me, I mean, it was always a very serious album, you know. And if they were trying to make it a parody, I think it didn't work, but that's a good thing. You know, it didn't work in a good way because, uh, you know, I, I think some of the absurdity of the album 
to me comes off more mysterious, which kind of heightens the intrigue about it. And maybe that's my American brain not comprehending the British or something. But I agree with you. Yeah, but, you know the stage show of Thickers of Brick is they, they, they you know, they, they famously interrupt the da, 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 they interrupt it with a phone call, and it's a phone call from the audience. So they're they're bringing humor into it there without a doubt. But I don't think that should undermine how it's almost the most serious Jethro Tull lyrical album i think of the lot there is some absurdity inserted into it like in the quote part like where the babies were yeah. in islands uh, and all that that's true yeah but it's not it's a different kind of humor it's a humor that just makes you go huh exactly yeah so a topic that we decided to talk about with Stuart is underrated toll songs so ahead of time all three of us have picked out some songs from the discography that we think are underrated or underappreciated overlooked whatever you'd like to describe it and we're all going to kind of uh, discuss them all together and see if we all agree. So, Stuart, if you wouldn't mind giving us your first pick for underrated Toll Song. Okay, so what, un- what is underrated and overrated is difficult for me to work out, seeing as I don't have any friends who like Just Red Toll. But uh, I've gone for the first one I'm going for is Dark Ages uh, from Stormwatch. So, so the, the folk trilogy album, Songs from the Wood, Heavy Horses, Stormwatch, they all have the same structure, interestingly, on each side of the album. So, from a vinyl point of view, think of them out. Think of the albums having two sides. Each side of those three albums has an epic song on them. So it's Hunting Girl, Peabrock on Songs from the Wood, No Lullaby, Heavy Horses on Heavy Horses, and Dark Ages, Flying Dutchman. They're the kind of mm-hmm. peaks of each of the sides. Um, and they're all outstanding. But Dark Ages is my favorite of those six songs. And one, it, it's a song that they worked on for two or three years. You can hear an early version of it on the Songs from the Wood, Stephen Wilson box set not really an early version of it, but it's an early version using ideas from it. There's there's an interesting BBC documentary of Jethro Tull on the road in early, early 1979, the live arts documentary, where they play an early version of Dark Ages. You see them in the studio. They really work hard at getting this right over a number of years. I think it has absolutely everything, this song. It has the most incredible atmospheric opening. It has hard rock riffs galore. It's got amazing time signature twists and turns. One of Martin Barr's greatest performances, in my view, Dark Ages. Ian Anderson's voice is incredibly, I mean, it's, it's really difficult to sing along to Dark Ages. The range is amazing. I think Ian Anderson later said it was one of the songs that cracked his voice playing Dark Ages live on that tour. It was incredibly tough on him. In particular, the middle section, which is the instrumental section between the second and third verses of the middle part, is one of the great Jethro Tull moments. It is the team moment of Jethro. It's almost the last great team performance of that classic lineup before they disband and it's incredibly moving so it just has absolutely everything in it it's the consummate sort of second half of the 70s Jethro Tull song I think and it's also by the way political right because it's about it's about you know Britain in the late 70s was not a happy place you know there were you know strikes everywhere and lights going out because power wasn't going to people's homes and it was I think dark ages is a literal thing as well so it's, it's of its time, unusually, as well as an amazing piece of music. In my opinion. I will agree with that because th- this is one of my favorite songs by Tull and Stormwatch being a favorite album. And yeah, that, that, that little instrumental section, uh, Martin Bauer's solo, which is preceded by a fantastic kind of very empty moment where it's just the bass ostinato and the drums and the flute lines being responded to with the guitar. Yeah, it's such a, such a wonderful atmospheric moment, and of course Martin Barr's guitar tone on this song and on the entire album, actually, which I, I mentioned that when we talked about this album, I think Stormwatch has the best Martin's guitar sound 
of probably the entire Tal discography. I think, yeah, thematically, the kind of apocalyptic imagery of Dark Ages, to me, a little bit harkens back to a moment in Thick as a Brick, uh, to the Tales of Your Life section. Like, the pavements are empty, the gutters run red. Mm-hmm. Well, the fool toast is God in the sky. It's kind of a similar, a description of a similar, you know, society breaking down into pieces. Yeah, so I'm actually, uh, if anybody who's listened to our Stormwatch episode, they may know that I'm actually not as big of a fan as of uh, Dark Ages as Eugene is. But uh, so when you look at kind of the epics of the folk trilogy, I think my favorites of those epics are more on the earlier side with things like Pibrock and No Lullaby and that kind of thing. But some of the positives that I can say about Dark Ages, some of the things that makes it stick out is there's a very deliberate attempt at, uh, you know, world building in the very beginning of the track where you know it makes me picture the back cover of Stormwatch, if you remember what that looks like, where you have kind of the yeah. frozen waste with the giant polar bear standing up. It seems to me like that's kind of what they were going for. And there's a very deliberate... Yeah, right there. <laughs> There's a very deliberate sonic attempt at making the sound, the song sound as huge as possible on Dark Ages. So, you know, the drums sound absolutely massive. There's a lot of reverb, you know, very kind of haunting vocals going on and that kind of thing. So that's kind of what sticks out to me about Dark Ages, aside from it being super duper long. <laughs> but it's uh, the, the huge attempt at, you know, world building and uh, just a massive kind of haunting sound to make it like really the epic of those three albums i agree i agree with that it's so if you try if you, if you listen to it but just follow each member of the band's part they're all astonishing john but the bass playing is amazing particularly in the middle part barry barlow is totally on fire martin Barr, as you say the sound of the guitar is amazing and it's is, is like it's it's just them at the top of their game even though it, you know it's clearly a less happy period in the band's history right yeah the bass part is fantastic i probably one of my favorites ian anderson's bass parts i did criticize his sound on the album compared to john's john glasscock's but the part in this song is very very well constructed very intricate yeah uh very difficult to kind of get your head around because there's so much detail in it so much little things that he probably came up with on the fly but the, it all fits so well so eugene let us know your pick for an underrated tall song okay my first pick for an underrated tall song uh will be backdoor angels i think Stuart has mentioned how he, he thinks war child is a great album and we talked we kind of understood when uh, when we were talking about it how what are the what are the reasons that some people don't really view it as a, f- a fantastic album but how many hidden gems there are at the same time and this is such a fascinating song compositionally because when i kind of listen to it again i think my idea about it today is that the main device in this song in are these little stops where it stops every now and then. There are little stops and there are long stops. And it resumes like five or six times in the course of the song, which is kind of, it's sort of a tall thing to do, but it's unprecedented to have so many of those crammed in, into a single song and, and them working so well at the same time. That's one of the things that I like about it. I really like the keyboard parts, which are very varied. There's very varied synthesizer sounds. There's that lovely brass synth line in the first verse that just happens once. And then when I listen to it very carefully, I think uh, there's kind of the main, main keyboards 
sound that plays the solo, which has the tremolo effect on it. And to me, it sounds like there's actually two keyboards instruments playing that. There's the synthesizer and an organ with a kind of a heavy overdrive on it. And they're playing the same line. One of these instruments has the tremolo effect applied, probably the, the, the synth, but it's kind of hard to tell because they're just playing that in unison. I don't know whether whether John played that just with both hands at the same time, or if they overdubbed that. But it's such a complex and meaty sort of sound, which I think it fits fits the song. It's, it's very unique. Joey, are you a fan? Yeah, actually, this song is interesting because it's probably the single song of the discography that we've listened to so far while doing this podcast deep dive that has, uh, my opinion on it has gone up the most kind of of every song that we've listened to. So I mentioned previously that War Child isn't really an album that I listen to that much. Not that I dislike it as a whole, but it just doesn't really cut it for me for the most part. But this song really stood out to me when I listened to it again, when we were preparing for our podcast. And uh, it's kind of the one song that has entered my rotation of Tull songs that I listen to now, which I wasn't listening to before we did our episode. So it's a really good example of, you know, prog Tull at its peak. And a lot of it really reminds me of a passion play. It kind of feels in a way like a leftover from passion play in a good way. So, um, I, yeah, I like it. It's, it's really fun to listen to. And particularly that main keyboard melody line you know, that the, the bass is also playing um, is really addictive to listening to. I find it also interesting. One of the things we did not talk about uh, is the moment in the lyrics where it switches from the kind of the, the description of this, this fanciful description of the backdoor angels characters and how they fit into this world, which is sort of my idea about this song, that it is world building. And then it, it switches to a reflection on the sort of arbitrary choice of God, all of a sudden. Why do the faithful have such a will to believing in something and call it the name they choose, having chosen nothing? Think I'll sit down and invent some fool, some grand court jester, and next time the die is, die is cast, he'll throw a six or two. So uh, he's exploring the notion that he can come up with a God and believe in them, and it will make as much sense as, as the rest of these. And it's kind of interesting how this moment fits into the the song where we actually have a character, like I'm, I'm imagining them uh, sit, standing on the street looking at those angels, whoever they are in, 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 in that universe. And then they suddenly have, a, have an epiphany about, about what God is to people. So Stuart, what did you want to say? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with the, the lyrics on that section. And one of my favorite lines of any Jethro Tull song is that why do the faithful have such a will? I think it's wonderful. I also love the I love the light shade contrast in this song, the sonic contrast between different sections. And and the bit you, you talked about, Eugene, about the, the interruptions. I used to, when I, when, I, when I first heard this, I remember playing a game because if you keep the beat going, it, it basically comes back in on the beat. So the beat is going all the way through, even in the pauses. It just catches up with itself again. And you can, if you play along with it, the band will come in and join you again after the pause is finished. Mm -hmm. So it's got this, it's, got, it's regimented. It sounds like it keeps breaking down and starting again, but actually it's incredibly regimented underneath all that in terms of its composition. And Barry Barlow's drums on this are fantastic because he's keeping a beat going throughout with the most shambolic feel to it. You know, it, it feels, you know, the, the line about the Rolling Stones about how Charlie Watts is always one beat behind Bill Wyman is always one beat 
behind Keith Richards. It has that feel to it, but it's incredibly tight, even though the drums themselves are always about to collapse the whole song. So it's a sort of joke within the song, I think, musical joke within itself. Uh-huh. And then it has at the end, again, I'm giving you like my top five Tull moments, which are actually 50 moments, but the, the transition from that into Sea Lion is one of the great moments in Jethro mm-hmm. Tull, I think. It's just fantastically Ian Anderson all over that. So it's, I think it's this absolute masterpiece, this song. No other song sounds like Backdoor Angels, by the way, that any band has ever done. It's one of, if you want to, it's, it's totally unique, including Tull, actually. One of the things that surprised me about Warchild when I sat down and listened to it again for the podcast was the drumming on it. Because I, I would actually maybe wager that of all the albums of the 70s, Warchild may be the most difficult or the most technical uh, album from a drum perspective. Some of the drum parts are just crazy on some of those songs. And like you said on uh, Backdoor Angels, uh, <laughs> there's periods where Barry is just on this crazy fill that just goes on and on and on. And somehow he's keeping the beat through the whole thing. And I, I, I'm sure it wasn't played to a click. So it's, an, it's incredible how he can do that. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, it's, it's one of the things that makes him one of the all-time great overlooked drummers. It's the song, by the way, that I'm having the most trouble transcribing to just solo acoustic of any Tull song. I've tried, I've tried so long, but it's really difficult to... <laughs> I think I want to do that breakdown piece, you know, it's really difficult. I'm sure you will. So my first pick for an underrated Tull song is Pied Piper off Too Old to Rock and Roll. So this was a, a song that Eugene and I disagreed with on our episode. I think Eugene actually uh, labeled it as his least favorite on the album. Mm-hmm. And it's actually one of my favorites, which is kind of funny. It This has always been one of the biggest uh, flawed gems or maybe overlooked gems kind of in this side of the discography. The thing I like the most about it is uh, during the choruses where you have that kind of, you know, delayed organ going on, or I guess electric piano going on in the back, and the delayed vocals that kind of, they slowly rise as the song goes on and they get back to chorus to chorus. It gives the song this amazing light feeling as if it's sort of floating in midair. And it fits perfectly with uh, some of the lyrics during one of those sections, which if I remember right, it's uh, like my schoolgirl fancy is floating in free flight. And regardless of whatever you think of the topic of the song, which, you know, of course, is, you know, isn't just and is kind of a parody, the the comparison of the floating in free flight with the sound of the song at that moment, it fits so perfectly with me because that's exactly what I feel and picture during those courses is just kind of, you know, light matter floating in the air. That's kind of what it gives me. And, uh, you know, there's there's lots of songs in this album that I think are total throwaways, but there's others that I think... Uh, are really quite overlooked and this is one that has always stood out to me i think Stuart, um you covered it on your channel but you didn't talk a lot about it uh, on that episode so we will i'd really li- like to hear what you have to say about that song yeah it was before i started doing my verbose introductions to songs um i did it early i did it because my son my older son who i've unfortunately made into a toll fan this is that is probably his favorite toll song or one of his top two or three favorite toll songs and he's made me realize how good it is i, I think it's a fantastic song it's got three melodic sections right? each of which is good enough for a song on its own the melody is so strong in each of these sections it's also got this fantastic string pizzicato strings in the background beautifully arranged gentle strings to complement the lyrics in the way joey's talking about you know really subtle and uh i I think it's quite funny because you know after the sort of the 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 dramatic moment on the album when ray ray kills himself on the motorbike in 12 to rock and roll you think he's killed himself and then the first line of the next song is oh well if you think he killed himself he didn't actually he's still alive and we've got two more songs to go so 
stick with me. It's quite funny. But it has a, it has a sort of, it feels to me like a sort of 70s poppy feel to it. It's almost, a, mm-hmm. it, it matches the song. It, it sounds a bit like a glam rock song, actually, in time, the times. This. So I think he's writing it in, in a genre, but, but being Ian Anderson, he just can't help himself coming up with these extraordinary melodies. And I just, mm-hmm. I, I, think, I think it's a fantastic mm-hmm. song. I think uh, the the first line following up, up from the previous song is kind of what annoyed me a little bit because the, I, I sort of spoke spoke about it like the, they are leaning too much into storytelling on this song uh, between this song and, and the others. Glam rock, yeah, there are I think elements of glam rock definitely on to old rock and roll, and not just this song. Kind of Big Dipper, which we mentioned today, yeah. kind of also feels very glam rocky to me. And of course, Crazed Institution talks about that sort of thing. It's the, the, the glam rock scene, the, the kind of behavior and style of uh, rock stars at the time is very glam in that in, in that song and the video kind of accentuates that as well with with ian being made up throughout the course of the performance yeah. one of the things i kind of noticed i don't think we talked about it or we just kind of brushed over it the drums have actually a, a straight up delay on them like a slapback echo a single echo beat which yeah. is very very distinct there an interesting decision because echo is usually used as something atmospheric or episodic but here we've got it used rhythmically throughout pretty much the entire track it's true it's also got an outro that's very beatles or monkeys ish it feels like a late 60s mm-hmm. sort of way of ending a song doesn't it yeah i think eugene you actually said the outro is the part you like the most yeah it's true. Yeah. Why don't we go one more round where everybody gives one? Mm-hmm. So we'll cool. do three more. So back to you, Stuart. Okay. So I'm going to go for Saboteur from Under Wraps, which we mentioned earlier on. And I think Saboteur is one of their greatest ever songs. It's also, it's, 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 it's the closest they come to ruining a great song <laughs> because of the, because it's where the drum track in overdrive section with the double, double bass you know, I can imagine hearing that thinking, oh, my God, I can't listen to this anymore at that point, because it just doesn't it doesn't quite work. The synthy double bass drum doesn't quite work. And it and it's unrelenting. Right. Once it starts, it doesn't stop. It just keeps going. But Saboteur has one of the great characteristics of Jethro Tull's song in, in, in its perfect form, in my view, which is the interplay between contending tunes. Because it has the main riff on the Martin Barr, the octaves riff he plays, the simple riff. But then it has this tune of the song, which Ian Anderson sings. And then in between his vocal lines, it has another third melody played, I think, uh, keyboard and flute together in unison. Mm -hmm. And these three tunes go up throughout the song, bouncing off each other. And I think lyrically, it's incredibly clever because it's essentially it it connotes the idea of, you know, someone who's living in, in plain sight, but wrecking daily life, you know, has a sort of. I feel as much of the album does about the Cold War, about the idea of people living in your midst who are undermining daily life. And and then it goes to a last verse when it says, well, actually think about Jesus as actually a saboteur in his own time, you know, going into the temple and uh, overturning the tables. And it's a, it just par- parks a thought in your brain, I think, which goes against the grain of the rest of the song in such a brilliant way. There's so much energy in this song. Right? It's got so much energy in it. It's... And Ian Anderson's voice is really stretching. And no, no wonder his voice went a year, a year after this, because Saboteur is really, really, literally top of the range for him to sing at. Um, so I, I just think it's, it, it's, it's got so many ingredients of a great song 
of a great Tull song, despite the fact that the, the drum track doesn't quite work. Yeah, I like this song. I, I like how you mentioned the energy of it, because that's one of the things that has always stood out to me about Under Wraps, is that it's an incredibly energetic album. You know, almost every single song is just exuding this energy, um, which is, is really interesting to listen to, especially in kind of the electronic context. And one of the things that, you know, of course, being an Under Wraps fan, I think it gets an unfair rap, no pun intended. And one of the things that I think that a lot of people don't see in it, which is actually there, is that to me, it's actually quite a progressive album. And, you know, I understand that there's some songs on their lap of luxury, things like that, that people see as kind of being an attempt at 80s chart building, that kind of thing, which I can agree with. But songs like Saboteur, Heat is a, is yep. a very good example. Um, so the bridges in those songs, the different sections uh, are so complex and so uh, layered. There's so much happening, especially on the keyboard front that uh, it comes across as a really kind of innovative and energetic style of electronic rock with the guitar, the central guitar line and some of the other guitars, uh, guitar parts on this song. There's an effect that I described on our podcast as like a Doppler effect, which is probably not the right word for it, but there's a very distinctive type of uh, guitar sound, which is used a lot on under wraps on a lot of different songs that makes it sound very spacey and kind of unlike a lot of other guitar tone on toll uh, material. Like uh, the song Astronomy uses it a lot, I think, to good effect. Um, and that's one part of what uh, I think about when I think about Saboteur, as well as the double bass, which thankfully is not that hard. It's, it's like you said, you know, the double bass comes in and then it just like goes on the entire rest of the song, which is kind of funny. I've never really uh, heard or read Ian talking a lot about what his thought process was with programming the drum machine, which is something that I, I'm be very interested to learn about. You know, hopefully if a Steve Wilson remix does happen, hopefully there's some stuff on the booklet about what his thought process was in doing that. Because some of the choices in the drum machine is just so crazy on this album. Like when you really sit and listen to it, you know, it's, it's not what a normal person in the eighties would have done with a drum machine. You know, he was clearly going in there and editing them in some cases, overdubbing things, you know, with specific intention to make this part unique or tweak this part a little bit. And it's really interesting how, and what his approach was to the drum machine. If, if, if I can just say just a quick one on that, I think you're absolutely right about that, Joey. I think one of the fascinating things is when Barry Barler leaves the band and Ian Anderson says a couple of things in the late seventies about how he would quite like a drummer who could just keep a straight beat and Barry, for all his genius, can't do that, which I'm sure Barry was furious about when he said these things. And he, he then gets um, Mark Craney and Jerry Conway in, right? And Jerry Conway's very, very straight beat, in my view, on Broadsword works incredibly well on a couple of songs like Broadsword itself, what it's magnificent, and The Clasp. And actually, it's quite flat on other songs, I think, his, 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 his overly straight drumming. I wonder whether by 84, when Under Wraps is made, Ian Annis is looking to a machine and technology to kind of bring Barry Barlow back into the band a bit. As he approaches the drum programming like a proggy uh, melodic instrument player does, he's looking for, for light, shade, contrast. And Barry Barlow, would have, if it had been in the studio, would have provided that anyway, you know, through the naturalness of his drum playing. Maybe that's what you do in your track. I'll listen to it, Joey. Maybe, maybe you're the Barry Barlow that Under Wraps has been needing for the last 35 years. Yeah, I agree with the with the thought that Ian wanted to make it a complex, more progressive drum track, and that th that is why all, all, all that pro pro programming happened. I'm also very happy that you chose this song, uh, 
because uh, there are a couple of unresolved questions left over from our podcast episode, because I've been wondering about a couple of lines in the lyrics there, which I would be very interested to hear your thoughts about. Painted ducks across your landscape. And another line, I'm only removing broken seashells from the beach. I don't half get confused by by these two lines. What where do you, where do you think they kind of fit in in the song? I, I think painted ducks across your landscape. I could be wrong. I think it's a reference to like you know in, in carnivals or fairs when you have a gun and you're supposed to shoot uh, pa- painted painted figures that go in a row across, and if you hit them, you get a prize. And I uh-huh. think it's a metaphor for what a saboteur is is doing. He's like taking uh-huh. pot shots at people. So. I think I think it's inside the head of someone trying to justify the, the way that they do terrible things uh-huh. in some insidious way. I think that I, that's always how I've I've heard that. I could be wrong. Like, but that's like that's a game to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the seashells. I'm only removing broken seashells from the beach. Well, you think I'm destroying lives, but I promise you, all I'm doing is I'm just picking up the broken seashells. They're already broken. Mm-hmm. I'm just getting yeah, rid of them. No, no one I needs them, the same, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's it's, a, it's the same self-justifying sort of voice. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I, I can I can see that. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for your insight because that's been bothering me. <laughs> we could do it. We could do a podcast on the most baffling tull vocal uh, lyrical lines. <laughs> that would be, be a, a six-hour marathon to test the most patient of listeners. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Eugene, what's your next underrated song? Okay, I want to go off grid and pick a non-album song. I would like to talk about scenario, even without audition seguing from it. Uh, because I think Scenario on its own is an absolutely fascinating song. Because it's all acoustic guitar, it's a, it's a song entirely delivered, vocal and guitar. You don't really notice at first glance the musical complexity beneath it. But there's three completely different sections in it. And the fourth one, which is the first but modulated, and then in a different tempo. And it's three parts which every one of these parts could be a song on its own. But no, they're put together and they lead us through a story, which is on the lyrical side, also consisting of, of, of very different parts. At the beginning, you have um, the cre- not the creation of man, but the first man, because in that lyric, no one is creating anyone. There stood alone a friend of mine, which is clearly what Ian meant there was the first man on Earth. And a god who happened by. These two characters don't have a relationship yet. It's not like an Aqualung, in the beginning man created God, and it's not like in the Bible, God created man. It's these two characters, two entities, existing separately and independently of each, of each other. And then throughout the song, the character of God kind of starts like whack-a-mole, popping in from very in very different places first it's a god who happened by then your god has gone there is a relationship then a god on high who smiled upon them from the sky and at the end god is the director it's four different roles that the character of god assumes throughout the song and it's it's kind of an idea that a god that god is a device that we put wherever it's currently convenient for us like in backdoor angels an arbitrary choice it's a great moment in i think in in in, in tall lyricism and and in kind of ian's religious philosophy if you will delivered on a com- completely captivating musical background yeah i i think it's a fantastic 
piece of music it, it feels like a a mini song cycle as you say in itself it goes it, go, it goes through almost three or four brief songs before coming mm-hmm. back to the beginning and his voice is wonderful in this. It's very, very expressive. And it has it has a totally sublime moment, which is the just in life's contentment of our soul bit, which is a beautiful little musical transition across the guitar. It's lovely. It's got fantastic, I think it's a glockenspiel in the background, right? Or a xylophone, mm-hmm. but it's yeah. beautifully done. I, I think, I always thought the lyrics were about the Adam and Eve moment, but it's, you know, there's still alone a friend of mine, which is Adam, and some sweet lady singing in his ear, your God has gone. That's Eve mm-hmm. inducing him into the yeah. all, all this... It's the fall, you know, and so it's 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 actually the most cosmic of his songs in a funny way, which is trying to encapsulate the entire relationship, as you say, between the original man and and God and everything that comes from that uh, in a, in a three minute solo song. I wonder whether he thought of this song. This is clearly going to be the overture of of the of the of what Passion Play, the first version of Passion Play, the Chateau Disaster, mm-hmm. and you can almost see him standing at the front of a stage on his own with the spotlight on him playing a guitar as a sort of unusual way of opening up into the rest of the of, of what it would have been so yeah i, I think it's I, I think it's one it's got a, a, a very interesting echoey vocal track isn't it as well it's got a yeah interesting production on it the delay on it i have very vivid memories of this song specifically something that i've mentioned on our show a couple of times is that some of my earliest exposure to tell was through cassettes that my dad had that he would play in the car and we had maybe four or five tall cassettes and we had one of the cassettes from Nightcap, and Eugene, you can correct me on this because you know more about this than I do, but if I remember right, Nightcap had, I think, multiple cassettes or multiple sides. You know, like part of it was a compilation and the rest mm-hmm. was like Chateau disaster mm-hmm. sessions. And so we had um, whatever side or cassette it was that had this song on it, because I remember this specifically, and also uh, no audition. No rehearsal. No rehearsal, right. No rehearsal right after it. And uh, so I remember hearing this song a lot as a kid, even though I never really went out of my way to listen to Nightcap that often. And I like, Stuart, what you said about being able to visualize Ian alone on the stage with the spotlight, because that's exactly the the kind of vibe that I get from this song. Um, You know, leaning very hard into the Passion Play theme, even though I guess Passion Play as an album hadn't entirely been established yet at this point. A lot of it reminds me musically, it reminds me a lot of the foot of our stairs section of a passion play. And I, I yeah. kind of uh, mm-hmm. guess that a lot of this, you know, track kind of morphed into that when they, uh, you know, kind of scrapped it all and started over for the album. Yeah, I think the production with the, with the reverb and the delay is, of course, courtesy of 1993 when they did Nightcap, when they did the, the, the post-production on that. And we now have the benefit of listening to a very intimate version of that on the passion play bonus tracks which yeah. doesn't have that much reverb and delay on it and the kind of reverse things happening all throughout the song but i i don't mind i'm one of those people who i li- used to listen to nightcap a lot i had it a copy of it that i made onto a cassette and i listened to it in a walkman as i was kind of returning home from from english classes late in the evening and it's kind of baked into my into my psyche sort of the the sound of that album and when when people say it's got too much reverb it's got too much post-production i like that and i like ian's later flute additions to it and all of that i can see where the criticism comes from it kind of sounds odd in places but there is there is something very 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 nice about that oddity to me so i'll mention uh, my last underrated track here i was going to mention another album track i was going to talk about flying dutchman actually which i agree with Stuart is a fantastic song overlooked song but uh, in the interest of continuing the non-album track bonus track theme 
I actually want to bring up part of the machine, which was a bonus track uh, from the Crest of a Knave era, which is kind of funny because we're actually right about to do our episode of Crest of a Knave, so we haven't talked about it yet. But I'm not really a huge fan of that album. I think there's parts of it that are okay, but the general kind of, uh, you know, rusty, bluesy, hard rock sound is not really one that I connect with much on that album. But for whatever reason, this song has actually always stood out to me quite a lot. Uh, I think I first heard this through the 20 years of Jethro Tull compilation. I think it was on there. This one really sticks out to me. It's It feels very expansive, which I think is kind of uh, is uh, expected, you know, or is, is fitting for a song like this when you listen to the lyrics and uh, the idea of an eagle flying above the machine where the eagle kind of looks down onto this huge, uh, uh, you know, complicated set of gears, which is kind of representative of what our world is, I suppose. Um, it has a really fantastic bridge. It, it has a very long instrumental bridge. The song is pretty long. It's like six minutes or something. And one thing that's always stood out to me is the lyrics, because I, I could very well be wrong, but the lyrics to me sound like they're about an election, about a political campaign. You know, there's lines about shaking hands, kissing babies for all of their worth and that kind of thing. And I've always tried to think about, you know, was this inspired by a real life election? Uh, you know, the, there was a there was an election in the U.S. in you know '84 would have been Reagan's re-election, so maybe it was written about that time period. Uh, maybe it was written about the '88 election, which was coming up, which was uh, George H.W. Bush. Maybe there was an election going on in the U.K. that I don't know about during that time. So I've always I've always kind of thought that was interesting and wondered if there was any kind of real world stuff that was influencing that. Yeah, it's interesting. I I, I, I like the song. Um, I also know I can understand why they left it off the album, or the, the initially released version at least. What I really like about it, I, I, like, the, I like the whistle, I like the way there's a, there's, a, there's a whole section in the middle, as you say, when the guitar and the whistle are in unison together, which is a really lovely sound. I love the skipped beats in the verse. I mean, it's, it's a classic uh, Ian Anson, just leave a beat off the end of the bar and go back to 4-4 again. In general, I, something starts happening around Crest of the Nave, which if I'm going to be, you know, I hate to be critical of Jethro Tull because they're my beloved, but... Uh, if there's something that starts happening around that time, which is Ian Anderson starts writing songs which resolve in a chorus to a quite straightforward bluesy groove sort of feel, you get a lot of it on Rock Island as well, like Heavy Water, songs like that. And and this this is one of the first songs that does. I think actually Budapest is like that on Crest of the Nave, right? That does it as well. This does that, and I I find I find the resolve of this song a little bit kind of bit of a letdown. It feels a little bit AOR sort of mainstream American hard rocky late 80s feel to it but what i really like the ch- as you say the change of tone in the middle and the way it, it skips on I, I, lyrically I, I i guess it's interesting what you say i have to think thought think more about that because i've always thought that this song was really about the monotony of of the life that you lead and looking as you say the eagle is i wish i could soar above it all and, and have real freedom and i've always tried to justify the rather mechanical feel of the beat uh, in the verse and chorus as being somehow t- encapsulating the monotony of of, of, of life it matches the lyrics in that sense but that's probably excusing it a bit too much so yeah I, I i i really like it i'm glad we got to hear it i think it's a really interesting song one of the things i think about this song is it could have been a highlight on each of the albums that surrounded it on on either side either on crest of a nave or rock island it could have been the central track but it wasn't and i think the reason for that i I believe that they didn't leave it off Crest of a Nave. What they did was they recorded it specifically for the 20 years of Jethro Tull compilation. It was a okay. new track recorded for the, for 
that release. And that's kind of, oh, I, I think, what makes it so complex. It's kind of a little album within a song. It doesn't have ideas kind of smeared around onto onto a release. It, it's lots of ideas packed into a song that they went all in and done as as a single. And it, I think that effort really shows. I, I enjoy this song a lot. I think it's got lots of it's proggy kind of for, for for what 80 style was it's very progressive it's got lots of different moments and uh, possibly to me one of the reasons for that was that it was it was a one off it it wasn't in the context of other songs on the album where they could think no let's not do that because we're doing that on another song no other songs were around at the time to overshadow it for them probably it, so i think that that is what makes it such a highlight i think you're right by the way about them recording it for the 20th anniversary because i remember when i bought it at the time and it came out and it was flagged as the the one new song written for the album mm-hmm. so i think they re- i think they probably played it as a band around crest to a native time but you're right they recorded it for that release i think mm-hmm. that's right and it kind of musically, I think, predates Catfish Rising. I think it doesn't really sound a lot like songs on Crest of an Ave or songs on Rock Island. It's much more similar to the sort of more acoustic vibe of songs like Sparrow on the Schoolyard Wall or other more acoustic songs on, on Catfish. And also there's, there's another thing I could probably criticize about this song is it in places sounds like ideas pulled from an from other tal songs compiled together into this one there's there's lots of moments that that kind of resemble other songs either melodic hooks or arrangement decisions but altogether it i think it's still a fantastic piece of work yeah i had no idea that it was recorded specifically for the compilation so i i had always wished that you know they had, it was one of those songs that became a bonus track that i wish they'd put on the main album mm-hmm. but uh now i know that it actually wasn't intended for the album at all it's pretty interesting yeah, this is kind of, you know, we'll talk more about this in our Crest of an Ave episode, but uh, the late 80s is kind of where Tull starts to end for me a little bit personally. You know, that's kind of as far as I usually go just in my own personal listening. So in a lot of ways, this song is kind of one of the latest Tull songs that I still regularly listen to for the most part. It's kind of right at the edge there for me. Right. I can see in your later right. podcast, Eugene's going to be sustaining the case for the 90s Jethro Tull <laughs> with the skeptical audience in Joey, right? <laughs> Could be, yeah. I have a few things to say about Catfish and a lot of things to say about Roots to Branches. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Kind of 90s Toll for me is mostly a total question mark. The only uh, exception is Roots to Branches, which I'm decently familiar with. I, I don't listen to it that much, but uh, I've, I've, that's one that I, I can at least kind of talk my way around without any notes. Yeah, I'm unusual. I think Catfish Rising is the weakest album of Toll. Mm. But that's, uh, I know it's a minority view. I was in the US when that came out, and it was there were a lot of people loved that album at the time. It was very, very popular amongst Toll fans at the time. So just as an aside, Stuart, I'm curious, how many times have you seen Toll, and what was your first time? Uh, I, I think if it's Toll plus Toll with Ian Anderson or Ian Anderson with people and calling himself Ian Anderson's Jethro Toll, if you add all those things together... It's about 16, I'd say. The first wow. time was uh, 8th of September, 1984, under Raps tour, Hammersmith Odeon. I was in the fourth nice. row, which was a, it was a wonderful stage show. It's when the, the, the curtains pull back and it's a, it's a laboratory and everyone's walking around in a white coat and yeah. Martin Barr bursts out underneath one of the mannequins. It was wonderful. There's a live album of that show, isn't there? There is. I think, in fact, it's the same day yeah. I was there, yeah. You can almost hear me squeaking wow, nice. with delight in the background. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was really privileged to see, I think it was the 40th anniversary show, 2008, and Barry Barlow came on stage at the Royal Festival. Oh, yeah. It was the only time he's ever played with Tull, and he played Heavy Horses. And it was it was absolutely fantastic. That was absolutely that was one of my favorite live moments of all. I think. Yeah, I I've I know exactly what you're talking about. I've tried for so many years to try to find footage of that online, and I can't find anything. You know, any video footage of that happening. So it's it's kind of a milestone in tall history because yeah. Know, lineups yeah. don't reunite too often. That's right. Exactly. So Joe, I heard you, you I heard you say once on the podcast you you saw. Tull in 2011 the first time when Martin Barr was on the last tour. Is that right? The last tour he did. Yeah. So I've, if you include Tull, Ian, you mm. know, that whole discussion, I'll, I'll leave that be. But if you include all this together, I've seen, uh, I've gone to three shows. So I saw officially Tull with Martin on the Aqualung tour, like the last 2011 um, tour, which uh, that was very fortunate. Obviously, I had no idea that was going to be the last tour that Martin played with him. And then um, I saw the Thick as a Brick tour in 2012, where they did both the entire Thick as a Brick yeah. and uh, Thick as a Brick 2, and then also the Homo Eraticus tour were the three that I've seen. Will you, will you guys cover Ian Anderson's solo albums, by the way? Is that part of the plan? We're thinking about So that. we haven't discussed it in depth. Um, I think, personally, I'm not really interested in doing all of them myself, but uh, I think Thick as a Brick 2 is worth going over because I think there's some stuff worth talking about on that one. I would probably like to talk about The Secret Language of Birds, but we'll, we shall see. It's If uh, one of us isn't terribly interested, we're not going to force it. Uh, about me seeing Tall, I saw two Ian Anderson shows in Kiev uh, with Florian in, I think it was 2017 and 2019. What I could say is, I think David Goodyear has a fantastic voice. <laughs> right. Wherever wherever he sang with, with with Ian, it really elevated everything. We want to say thanks so much, Stuart, for coming on. You know, it's really important for our podcast. You know, our goal is kind of beyond just talking about the music. You know, beyond just delivering episodes based on the albums, the songs, that kind of thing. Part of what we're trying to do is really kind of congregate the Tull fan community online into kind of, uh, you know, a singular medium where lots of different figures who are involved in lots of different things in the fan community can kind of get together in kind of a single mouthpiece. So we're really happy that you've agreed to come on and kind of share with us some of your passion for Tull and, you know, sort of what you're doing on your own channel. Well, listen, thanks so much for inviting me. It's been an absolute joy. And thanks so much for all your wonderful podcasts too. And hey, maybe, maybe there'll be a day where we can share a drink in the same place rather than zooming from different sides of the world that'll be, be really fun yeah or even cover a tall song together all three of exactly. us exactly let's do that that'd be great yeah it, it has been an utter delight thank you Stuart, so much for joining us for being here and for, for everything that you do thanks guys still soon i hope thank you Stuart. thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you on the next podcast episode thanks bye